0: changes the more we find comfort in the things that
1: never change
0: never change
1: this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network hi everybody and uh, welcome to the rabbi daniel lapin show where i your rabbi reveals how the world really works the the show where we talk about things that really matter to your life and today i want to mention that uh, for many years already if a uh, it used to be radio and then it was television and movies but if any entertainment medium uh, depicted people with black skins badly well, they immediately had a knock on the door from an organization known as the NAACP, right? The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. This is an organization that was began in uh, 1909. It got incorporated in 1911, but um, uh, it was meant as a originally as a biracial organization to advance justice for African-Americans. And um, uh, the, the founding groups were African-Americans and then a group of white people as well, including a bunch of Jews. And uh, this is what it uh, was originally, and it, it grew. Uh, they got financing from people like Jacob Schiff, who was a big Jewish financier, and uh, they they grew. Uh, Bois was a... Um, uh, a very significant early leader and uh, it, it grew it, it grew pretty quickly um as early as 1913 they organized opposition to Woodrow Wilson that was the president Wilson at the time he tried racial segregation into um, government policy and workplaces and hiring and the NAACP uh, clamped down on that and and they really, uh, were very effective indeed by 1914 they had about 6000 members 50 branches and uh yeah it was it was it was fairly it was fairly effective um the, there's a book called A history of jews in america by howard sacker by the way uh make sure your children in school are not using howard zinn's history of america z i n n uh, Howard Zinn was a hardcore socialist or communist, and his history of America is absolutely dreadful. I do not understand how it remains the official history textbook in so many school districts around America, probably because it is anti American, at any rate. Um, Uh, The chairman of the NAACP in 1914 was a Jewish guy who'd been a professor at uh, Columbia University called Joel uh, Spingon. And uh, on the board were Jacob Schiff and Jacob Billikoff and Rabbi Stephen Wise. And uh, it was an organization devoted to uh, justice for everybody in America, obviously with a focus on people with black skin. And from that day to this, it it exists as um, an anti-defamation organization. People try and baselessly defame uh, Americans with black skins. The NAACP leaps into action. Um, a few years later, the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith began. This was a Jewish anti-defamation league, and uh, they began in about 1913, and the idea was to... Uh, stop all defamation of the Jewish people by, uh, by appeals to conscience and reason and law, whatever's necessary, stop the defamation of, of Jewish people. And sure enough, uh, it served as that purpose until it became uh, an arm of the Democratic Party, which happened much more recently. Uh, historically, they opposed groups and individuals they thought were anti-Semitic, the Nazis, the Ku Klux Klan, uh, even Henry Ford, uh, Father Charles Coughlin. Uh, he had an organization called the Christian Front, and, uh, and so on and so forth. But um, the uh, ADL, the Anti-Defamation, it used to be an organization that had a legitimate mission and uh, did it well. It obviously changed in later years to become an arm of the Democratic Party, as did the NAACP, by the way. Um, And then much, much later, around about 1970, um, there was a guy called Joe Colombo, Joseph Colombo. Everyone knew him as Joe Colombo. And uh, he uh, sort of everybody kind of knew he was really a uh, a very high up mafia don. He was a leader in the uh, Cosa Nostra but whenever you'd actually speak to him, he was he was an extremely entertaining and funny guy and he always used to say look I'm just a small businessman I run a funeral parlor I have a landscaping business I do this I do that I work hard to make a living and he was always complaining that he was harassed and his family were harassed by a bunch of federal uh, various federal law enforcement authorities who kept on insisting that Joe Colombo was the boss of one of New York City's five main mafia families. And he constantly denied this. At any rate, uh, he and some of his people decided to start the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And that's exactly what they did. Um, they started off as a small group of demonstrators at, uh, at the FBI building in Washington, but eventually there they were about 5,000 people there, and they became the Italian-American Civil Rights League. Um, Jewish lawyer worked for Joe Colombo. His name was Barry Slotnick. Uh, he did the incorporation, and he designed the logo. And uh, from then till now, there is the uh, Italian-American Civil Rights League. And so— to this day, if you make a movie and you unfairly depict uh, all the criminals as being Italian Americans, you are going to have to deal with the Italian American Civil Rights League, and and so it is. Like, I mean, I've just picked three of the big ones. Uh, uh, the people, the organization for Jewish people, the organization for Black people, the organization for Italian people, but there's no end of these organizations, and they're all intended to do exactly the same thing, which is uh, to uh, protect the public image of these groups. And so, you know, in spite of the fact that um, uh, a very large, a disproportionate number. Of violent crime in America is committed by men, young males with black skins, um, you'll notice that almost overwhelmingly uh, newspapers have stopped, this is many years already, newspapers have stopped printing the race of criminals. This was largely due to the work of the NAACP that brought pressure to on the papers saying no uh, good comes of that identification. Uh, the uh, Italian-American League, well, they really managed to stop Italians being the sort of go-to group. Whenever Hollywood wanted a movie with uh, various gangs and organizations, criminal organizations, it was always the Italian mafia. And so they stopped that. And so, um, so today you'll find there are various different kinds of organizations, some of them completely fictional that Hollywood has come up with, so as not to run foul of these organizations. And heaven help you. Heaven help you. If you uh, do anything that could be seen as depicting a Jew badly, well, the Anti-Defamation League will drop on you like a 50-pound bag of cement. And so uh, uh, there are two groups that come to mind. There may be others, but there are two groups that come to mind that do not have an anti defamation league that don't have some organization that prevents the bad depiction of these groups. Uh, one of them, of course, are evangelical Christians that are routinely defamed in Hollywood. Uh, they're either depicted as as mad and in in, in movies that show Uh, Christians like priests or nuns, they're almost always depicted as evil or uh, mad or both. And yet, where is the Christian Anti-Defamation League? Where's the Evangelical Anti-Defamation League, right? Doesn't exist. And the other group are business professionals, people who make their living by the honest, dignified, moral process of providing their customers with the goods and services that they need and they want. This is a huge number of Americans, and yet there is no Anti-Defamation League for business people. It simply doesn't exist. And so, not surprisingly, who is the villain of choice? On television and in ho- uh, entertainment. I was going to say Hollywood, but by the way, I looked into the movies made in the Indian, you know, they make a lot of movies in India, so much so that the place, the Indian movie industry is called Bollywood. And I looked and it's exactly as true there as it is in Hollywood. But you know, who is the, the bad guy? Well, the bad guy is always uh, the businessman. And I was struck by this because I recently, I've never seen the movie, but that doesn't stop me learning about it. I wanted to know a bit bit more about the Lego movie. Well, imagine my astonishment upon discovering that the evil villain of the first Lego movie, this is for little kids, I mean, at what age do you want to start indoctrinating them? And the answer, of course, is as early as possible. And who's the evil villain in the first Lego movie? If I have it correctly, and by all means, uh, write in to me at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, if I'm mistaken. My understanding is Mr. Business is this evil Lego man who uh, is horrible, and uh, he's, he's like Ebenezer Scrooge in many ways. He's a bad, bad guy. Remember that old movie, A Christmas Carol, 1984. There, there been be a number of makes of it. Ebenezer Scrooge, horrible, evil businessman. Um, how about uh, It's a Wonderful Life? Right, a Jimmy Stewart classic. It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, you really ought to. But the bad guy, the villain of that movie, Mister Potter, the the uh, the banker, and um, uh, and and he he's trying to destroy. Um, George Bailey's business and uh, he wants to destroy Bedford Falls, the whole town and make it, bring it under his power and um, and there it is you know Mr. Potter, the evil businessman uh, Chinatown, that's another classic, I have seen that one um, Noah Cross you might remember him, played by John Huston by the way uh, he profits from his tie in with a political Power structure of the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, and um, Jack Nicholson plays uh, Jake's, the guy on his who's chasing after him. I think it's, it's not such a popular movie now because Roman Polanski, the original sexual predator, you'll remember. And by the way, if you look into what happened with him, um, kind of unfair. Yes, it's true, she was underage. But uh, she didn't reveal that. It was not known. And she, on the contrary, portrayed herself as a super sophisticated uh, young woman of of 19 or 20. Anyway, Roman Polanski doesn't need me to defend him, and I'm not doing so. But uh, is it fair? Exactly. I'm not sure it is. But anyway, not to get off topic, Noah Cross, the evil villain of Chinatown. Yeah, he'll do anything for money and power, just like any businessman, right? Uh, forget the business people who stay up at night, um, tormented by the agonies of finding enough cash flow to make sure their employees get paid, right? Forget them. Um I'm, I, the Godfather, I'm not going to really talk. I mean, Vito Corleone was the Godfather, but, but that, was a, a different, that wasn't just a businessman. He he was doing more than that. But uh, do you remember Aliens? I don't know how many of these movies you've seen, but I'm just sort of giving you a selection of them, and I hope that uh, that you see there's a pattern here. Uh, Carter Burke in, in Alien, horrible, greedy businessman, sacrifices, safety, and every good thing. For, uh, for more money and more power. <clears throat> and uh, Paul Reiser plays Carter Burke. He's a corporate lawyer, and um, he uh, does terrible things. There was a lovely movie my children enjoy called Newsies. This goes back to the early 90s, you'll remember. And um, there is a guy there who is um, supposed to be Joseph Pulitzer, played by Robert Duvall. And, again, he just cares about absolutely nobody uh, in his interest of grabbing more and more money. Um, There was The Firm. Uh, The Firm was a John Grisham book that turned into a movie. Tom Cruise plays the good guy, obviously, and Gene Hackman plays Avery Tolar, is the senior member of the law firm, and uh, suffice it to say, pretty bad. Um, classic James Bond I mean, all the James Bond have businessmen who are villains but Tomorrow Never Dies uh, you'll remember had uh, Jonathan Price playing Elliot Carver, I found that one very interesting because he was made up to look identical to Rupert Murdoch, the, um, uh, the tycoon who owns Fox News and the Wall Street Journal, basically an international news media tycoon, mogul and Elliot Carver looks just like um, Rupert Murdoch in the movie Tomorrow Never Dies from 97, right? Um, anyway, he was this evil villain, but he's a businessman. Uh, American Psycho, uh, that sort of developed a bit of a cult following. By the way, I mean, I could carry on. I'm not going to, but I could provide you with a 100 movies easily that, are, uh, that always have the evil villain as the rich businessman in American Psycho, you'll remember Patrick Bateman, if you watched that, um, he was played by Christian Bale and he's uh, a Wall Street guy with uh, he just likes killing people, right? That's what most Wall Street financiers do, right? They just kill people. Um, uh, there will be blood. The more recent Daniel Plainview is the uh, is a horrible person in that who makes money. And, and so it is. You remember uh, Michael Douglas, Gecko, in, in was it, I think there was, was that Boiler Room or Wall Street? I don't quite remember. But uh, whatever it was, I mean, bad, these are bad people. Remember, um, uh, during the movie, by the way, he, he yelled out, greed is good. Uh, there was another movie called Wall Street with Leonardo DiCaprio, you might remember, and. Um, no, no, no. That wasn't that wasn't Wall Street. Leonardo DiCaprio was the wolf of Wall Street, and uh, and again, could not have been a, uh, a a more horrid depiction of a businessman and uh, as a financier. Do you remember the Poseidon Adventure? All right, the the ship. It was a, it was really a, I, I thought it was a terrific movie. Um, the ship eventually turns over and it, it kills people and puts other people in terrible life peril. And uh, and the ship owner's representative was the guy who, on, in the name of the ship owner, the business people who own the ship, forced the captain to go full speed and he prevented him from taking on the extra ballast so uh, that would keep the ship stable because it makes it go a bit slower. So, not surprisingly, the ship capsizes when it hits a tidal wave. Um, rollerball. There was another popular movie. Um, so the uh, the hero, James Caan, plays the star, the sports star, and uh, he's, they're going to arrange to kill him. Who? The business people, the people behind the scenes who are making the money. Um, Rachel Wise in The Constant Gardener. She was this brave activist who... Who was um, killed by the pharmaceutical company because she's about to expose the horrible, evil things that they do? Right? Um, I guess Citizen Kane is to some extent the same thing. Um, the movie about the head of the, the the creator of the Apple company, Steve Jobs, uh, depicts him as an emotionally warped guy and. Uh, I'm not sure that was really uh, – I, I, I may be wrong in, in sort of including him in this because, well, he was a bit of a strange guy in many ways. Um, so the social network, um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg played Mark Zuckerberg in the creation of Facebook. and And so it goes. I mean, you can make your own list, right? There is just so much negative portrayal of people in finance, people in capitalism, people in business, just constantly horrible, horrible stuff. And uh, it's it's very undeserved. One of the questions I leave you with is, why do you suppose there is not an anti-defamation league? Why isn't someone out there stopping Hollywood making mean-spirited jokes and slurs defaming evangelical Christians? Why isn't there a defamation league there for business um, saying, hey, you know what, we've had enough of this? It's not as if businessmen are the number one criminals in the United States of America. As a matter of fact, if you look at the numbers, it's kind of interesting. Uh, There are actually a greater proportion of doctors and a greater proportion of school teachers uh, commit crimes than do uh, American business professionals. So – Put that in your pipe and smoke it, right? But why isn't there an organization that jumps on Hollywood and says, you know what? Cut this out. Uh, you cannot make every villain to be a successful capitalist, to be a successful business professional. That is totally unacceptable. That would be nice, right? So seriously, when you uh, when you thought about it, go to my website at com. And uh, let me know if you have any theories as to why there is an organization to protect um, Italians from defamation and an organization to protect blacks from defamation, an organization to protect Jews from defamation. But uh, why is it okay? Every comedy show, every sitcom, every um, talk show, You can barely tune in to any of these things without finding some kind of a slur directed at Christians, some kind of an insult at uh, Christianity happens all the time. Never against – oh, by the way, Muslims, I should have mentioned that. They have an organization called CARE, right, which is uh, uh, Islamic-American relations. And again, you just try and make a movie where the terrorists are Muslims. Right. I mean, what could be truer to life? And you will find care on your head like two bags of cement or. uh, And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that many movies nowadays uh, create completely fictitious terrorist groups. One of them was uh, I forget which movie created a group. It was uh, it was one of the uh, Bruce Willis movies, I think. Evil Nazis. Well, Nazis are always good because Nazis don't have an anti-defamation league. Uh, then an, one of them had a, a group of terrorists made up of white South Africans, right? Can't go wrong with that. And, um, and so this movies today are very careful not to slur African-Americans, not to slur Muslims, not to slur Jews, not to slur Italian-Americans. Who's left? Christians and business professionals. But why don't these groups have their own anti-defamation league? If you have an explanation for that, go ahead and let me know at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. There's a place, uh, one of the tabs you can get to is Contact Us. It's About Us and then Contact Us, and I will get your note. And if it's not too long, I will read it, I promise you. So, all of that. While you're at the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, What you need to do is take advantage of a special discount for listeners of this show on a very useful resource called Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Now, I want to point out that that title, Madam, I'm Adam, is a palindrome. In other words, you can read it exactly the same from one direction Or the other. It's uh, one of the famous palindromes is a man, a plan, a canal. Panama! And if you read it from the back end, it reads also, from back to front, it also reads a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. It's wonderful. Well, Madam, I'm Adam is uh, the phrase that uh, I, in my fantasies, imagine was how Adam uh, woke up from his anesthesia in sleep that God induced and Adam woke up and what did he see he sees this absolutely enchanting and beguiling and beautiful creature in front of him he doesn't even want to blink he doesn't want to take his eyes off her for a moment he's so completely enchanted and he greets her he politely says madam I Adam and uh, well Obviously, that didn't happen quite that way. But I did want to highlight the uh, bi-directional aspect of marriage. Marriage is something looked at one way from the man's side, but it's also looked at from the woman's side. And finding the palindromic qualities there are uh, uh, is, is what's important. Uh, so, for instance, in this audio pro, it's a two-hour program. You can download it, by the way for literally um the, the price of uh, uh, a lavish coffee at uh, at a national coffee shop chain whose name will remain nameless until they become sponsors of this show uh, the um, the name is Madam I'm Adam you'll see it at on the rabbi daniel com website and uh, if you're curious about many 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 aspects of marriage really practical Uh, life-enhancing things. Take this, for instance, uh, the unbreakable triangle of marital strength. You know, it's very easy for a man uh, to get irritated with his children because in his mind there are many times where they block his access to his wife. I mean, you know, how many times does any married man remember circumstances where he and his wife were just beginning to enjoy a quiet moment together when all of a sudden a child starts crying from the room down the hallway, right? And so it's very easy for a married man to start seeing his children as in many ways obstacles to his bliss. And uh, the triangle of power is the same triangular shape you see constituting the trusses on girder bridges the triangular shape is enormously strong and the triangular shape in a family is that um, the father looks and focuses on his children which endears him in the eyes of his wife of course but i'm not there yet he focuses on the children and uh, and um On protecting them and educating them and building them up and strengthening them. That's that's what a father should do. The children receiving all that goodness focus on mom, right? Because again, any time a child scrapes his knee, the kid yells, Mommy, not daddy. Children automatically and intuitively focus on mom. And that's why the, the fourth the fourth commandment in the ten excuse me the fifth commandment in the ten commandments honor your father and mother. Why does it put father before mother? Because the instinct is mother. In uh, American jails, which I would love to see shut immediately, uh, they are noxious and evil aspects of American society. But inside American institutions of incarceration, you'll find a lot of guys with. Um, with uh, tattoos and a lot of those tattoos read mother or mom but you will struggle if ever to find one that says dad or father now you might say well because men without fathers boys who grew up without fathers are more likely to end up in jail and you'd be exactly right but the point is we have an intuitive link to our mother god comes along and says uh, go beyond nature and focus make sure you honor your father as well as your mother. Very easy to honor mom, harder to honor dad and for men, and therefore that's something we absolutely have to do. And so uh, dad focuses on children, children focus on mom, and that leaves mom available to do what will make dad happy, which is focus on her husband. That triangle is one of the things... That we teach in the audio, two-hour audio program, Madam, I'm Adam. It also comes with a 16-page color study guide, which you'll find incredibly useful if you have any interest in actually probing the biblical origins of all that wisdom. And so uh, head over to Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, not only can you search for Madam, I'm Adam and get that because somebody in your circle, maybe it's you, maybe it's a child of yours, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a friend. But somebody in your circle, I guarantee you, could use some marriage strengthening. And for people who are not going to actually take the weekend or two or three to go off to marriage enrichment seminars and weekends, which are good, often very good, but uh, people who are not going to do that. Well, encourage them to sit down with their spouses and listen to Madam, I'm Adam, decoding marriage secrets from Eden, and you will find them to be enormously grateful to you for bringing this to their attention. While you're at rabbidaniellappin.com, by all means, uh, make sure you're on our mailing list for thought tools and for Susan's musings and for our most popular feature, Ask the Rabbi, all of that. And you can also read back episodes of all those columns at rabbidaniellappin.com. Or if you can't remember rabbidaniellappin.com, just go to You Need a Rabbi and you'll get exactly the same effect. Now uh, you'll enjoy, I hope you'll enjoy, this is a uh, program I did. It's a live program for a large group of sales professionals uh, of a financial service organization. I speak for them twice a year, and uh, this would be uh, the most recent one I did for them. And uh, I hope you enjoy. Please let me know, by the way, if, if you don't like me doing this, if you don't like uh, having me insert uh... live programs i've done for you then then let me know if enough of you don't like it i won't do it but in the past i've got quite a lot of encouragement people seem to like it so here it is please enjoy it well thank you very much indeed thank you it's not that i'm starved for applause But I'd like to ask you all to clap some more, but here's how I'd like you to do it. Uh, I want you to focus on clapping at a steady pace, not the usual kind of applause, but give me steady claps about, you know, one every half a second, something like that. Okay, that's, that's good. Did I ask you to clap in unison? No. 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 How long did it take you to get synchronized with one another? Within about a second. Says a lot for you. Most crowds, on average, take about five seconds to sync. Uh, you did it very quickly. Um, fireflies. Ever seen fireflies on a summer's evening? Some places have them more than others. Um, when there's a group of fireflies on a bush, They start sinking their flashes. Nobody knows why. Uh, It's it's hard to come up with any evolutionary reason for it. It, It's hard to think of any reason at all, um, other than maybe as a lesson to human beings. Because what you all did there was really interesting. You wanted to be part of a group. Where's your independence? Where's your uniqueness? Why weren't there a few of you clapping out of sync? It usually is one in every group but um, pretty much everybody clapping together with everybody else is a very important lesson to be learned there and whether you believe that we are here because of a random and accidental process of lengthy evolution that turned primal sludge into bookkeepers and ballerinas. Oh, you shouldn't laugh because it's rude to laugh at other people's religious beliefs.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and
1: um, uh, Or whether you believe that the good Lord created us in his image and put us here, it doesn't make any difference. Either way, one thing is obvious and that is that human beings are created to connect. It does two things for us, connection. One is it keeps us sane, and the other is it makes us money, and I'll explain both. Boy, I didn't come to Dallas for the weather, I'll tell you. (laughs) Came for you, for the people, but uh, to connect. Anyone know when air conditioning in cars was invented? Like a fantastic invention. of the mom, in yes? Car. Air
0: conditioning in cars. Um. cars. Oh, in cars. Yeah.
1: Um, it was the Goldberg brothers in 1946. They had a machine shop in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And uh, they went down the road to where Henry Ford was churning out thousands and thousands of automobiles. <laughs> and it was this uh, hot day. It was in July 1946. And they. Look, the Goldberg brothers, not only were they engineers, but they were businessmen, so they knew what they were doing, and they managed to sweet talk the um, the secretary to let them into uh, <laughs> to let them into Henry Ford's office, and Henry Ford looked up and he said, uh, you know, what are you what are you what are you here for?" They said, "You have to come out. We don't want to talk in here." So he thought it must be something very private. They he, he doesn't they don't want to think there may be listening devices, so. Uh, they walked him out into the parking lot where their car was sitting. And they asked him to get in the car. Well, he got in the car and started sweating because it was like 115 degrees in the car. And the three, um, the three Goldberg brothers, Hiram, Norman, and Maxwell, uh, got in as well. And uh, Hiram turned on the engine, flicked a switch, and the car began to cool down. Henry Ford was blown away. couldn't believe this. And um, after a few minutes, it was, it was really cool in there. He said, How you do this, this is amazing. He said, I, I want to buy this patent from you, and um, I'll give you $2 million for it. You know, put it in every car. So uh, the brother said, uh, That's okay, but we have a r- another condition, and that is that on the controls on every car, it must say, air conditioning by Goldberg. We want our name on on the invention. Well, Henry Ford wasn't crazy about Jews, you know, which he's right. um, And he said, look, Goldberg's a kind of a Jewish name. I really don't want that name on all my cars. Um, That's that's not going to work. So he said, you know, I'll give you $4 million, but no names. And they negotiated back and forth there in the cool car in the parking lot in Detroit that July afternoon in 1946, and they finally settled on a solution. And the solution was that uh, it would not have their last name on it, but it would have their first name, and they settled for $3 million. And from that day to this, on every Ford car, on the air conditioning, you will see high, norm, and max.
0: That—that <laughs> so, um, okay.
1: that is the only lie I'm going to be telling you. <laughs> from, from here onwards, only truth. <laughs> Uh, now, I'm going to make a suggestion. It's only a suggestion. I have no control over you. Uh, I would suggest this and advise this. And it's going to be difficult for some of you to accept. But I'm going to suggest you put away your pens, put away your note paper, and don't take notes. Are you, re- are you recording this um, presentation? Yes. Yeah. So it may be possible if people really do want to, would they be able to get hold of a a recording? So you don't even need to take notes. I I didn't even know that, even without that. And I'll tell you why. Because nobody can do two things at the same time properly. And so we've got to decide, are you listening or writing? You can't do both. You'll get a a little bit, you know. but. If the important part – please take a seat. If the important aspect of all this was having notes, then I can promise you that Bill would have arranged with me to bring notes to hand out, and then we could have handed them out and all gone home. (laughs) But that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to connect with you. And I am a member of one of the greatest professions on the planet. I'm a sales professional. That's what I do. It's a fantastic profession, because it means that if you are a trained and effective sales professional, you can parachute into any city on Earth and get a job. but it also means a whole lot more than that because it means you have learned to connect with people. And if you think about it, really, there are not a lot of people who are not sales professionals. Uh, Judges on the United States Supreme Court, they're not sales professionals. Um, Employees, I, I heard Bill in his introduction, uh, mentioning one of my least favourite institutions in American life, namely the public school educational system, which which truly um, robs people of their legacy. It's uh, it's just n- it's not fair what they do. Uh, I mean, do you know that in New York they spend now over 17 billion million dollars a year on teachers who are not teaching? It's something called the rubber room that's where teachers who the principals will not allow in front of a classroom but cannot be fired mm. so they show up for work they have to show up on time every day they sit and read magazines and play cards with each other in the rubber room this is New York if you ever th- wondered why that city is so dysfunctional uh, so it's not my lea- it's not my favorite institution public education I understand that it's a reality but at least if each and every one of us who have children in public schools, at least you know that your responsibility doesn't end with putting your child on that yellow bus, because they don't care about your child as much as you do. They actually don't care about your child at all. And so, you know, you can't heave a sigh of relief and say, well, you know, from eight to five, my kids at, at school, nothing to worry about. On the contrary, everything to worry about. But at least if you know that, forewarned is forearmed, so that, that's good. But uh, uh, public school, uh, bureau, uh, public school administrators and teachers, they are not sales professionals. A sales professional is somebody who gets cornflakes in the morning because of his skill and of his work. But if what you do has almost no connection with your remuneration, then you're not a sales professional. If you do not have to put out effort for your customers, you're not a sales professional. Um, I've got the highest respect for the post office in this sense, that the post office manages to deliver close to 100 million pieces of mail a day. Now, if you think about it, if they had a 99% success rate, then it means 1% is a failure, therefore a million letters would be lost every day. And the failure rate is mm-hmm. much lower than that. They don't lose a million dollars, a million letters a day, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. It means they're doing much better than 99%. So you know, highest respect for for a, for a system that that's on some level does work. but. Um, The level on which it doesn't work is that it's been turned into a government bureaucracy. And it's very rare, it happens, it's very rare to walk into a post office and be attended to by somebody who actually cares about you, because they get paid whether they look after you or not. And what's more, if you don't like the way they look after you, there's nothing you can do about it, Uh, except go to another post office and you'll find the jerk followed you. (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing you can do get the uh, the employee who doesn't care get them fired out of the question a sales professional can be fired (coughs) a sales professional is somebody with the the courage to take his or her destiny in their hands and rise or fall on their own skill and on their own efforts. It's a, it's a hugely prestigious and an and important profession, and it's one I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of. And, um, and in, this in, in this profession of sales professional, it is essential to be able to communicate effectively a set of ideas, but I can only do that if we are face to face. I can only do that if we're looking at one another, right? And so therefore, when your heads are down on your notepad, taking notes, not only is a good part of your attention no longer on me, but it's now on forming the words and, th- and thinking how to write down what I said because you can't write as quickly as I say so you've got to convert it into a sort of shorthand and all of that is using up mental attention that could have gone on the interaction and it's a problem you know because we're all trained on social media these days and we, I mean the name was brilliant right, Facebook what a clever idea right you think about it, uh, uh, it it really captures what we want it to be, face-to-face communication. But it isn't. Not even close. And so it's really important not to confuse Facebook with life. (laughs) I mean, honestly, think about it. How would you feel if you got home this evening and you found me in your living room flipping through your (laughs) photo albums of your (laughs) wedding? You say? You'd be indignant. And I'd say, hey, don't worry, we're friends.
0: <laughs>
1: I get to look at your photos because we're friends. <laughs> oh, really? Is that how it works in the real world? I don't think so. Very important not to confuse Facebook with real life. And I said that um, a connection created for connection. That's us people. And connecting accomplishes two things, two great gifts. In in my particular worldview, like I said, I talk to a lot of different people and I have no idea what people's beliefs are, although I consider them to be hugely important because beliefs really dictate actions, not facts, The beliefs. Right? Uh, When people give up smoking, it's not because they got a new fact, but there's no secret. You know, for 50 years, there's been no secret about smoking, but a belief changes. And so we, we, we function on beliefs, and beliefs are important. But I don't know and care what people's specific beliefs are because. I have something of extraordinary value and a certain amount of time in which I get to impart it to you, and you're able to then uh, take it away. But at least in, in my system, uh, my worldview is that God created us. That happens to be me. And I'm, I'm telling you this just because you, you have the right to know where I'm coming from. And um, in that system, I, I see God as, as my Father in heaven, and he has certain similarities with my Father on earth. Uh, My father took off his belt uh, quite often. (laughs) And honest to goodness, um, I can't blame him one little bit. (laughs) Um, Looking back, you know. uh, But the one thing that really got him taking off his belt was when I got in fights with my brothers. That really bothered him. The one thing he i mean he really if we ever wanted something from dad we knew what to do we had to put on an act of incredible <laughs> brotherhood and love we just loved each other all the way up to the sky and dad became malleable he became docile we could get almost anything we wanted as a kid you know it made no sense to me at all but uh As an adult and as a parent myself, I get it. I get it. When I see my kids loving each other and caring for one another, there is something special going on. That's the boss up there also. When he sees us connecting, apparently he likes that. Apparently that's a good thing. How do I know? Because he incentivizes us to do it in two ways. He incentivizes us to do it by number one, granting us sanity. We keep our mental balance when we are connected with other people. I hate to bring up such a a tragic topic as the shooting last week uh, here in Texas, in El Paso, and elsewhere. Unfortunately, these these things uh, happen with some um, regularity. And um, and it's obviously, it makes sense to take a look and see what are the common factors, what are the things that uh, that, that unify these mass killings. And um, because of political reasons, and again, I'm sure there are people here on both sides of the Second Amendment issue. People are here op- against guns. Some people are in favor of, of guns. but. The bottom line is that it's certainly true that the majority of mass shootings are perpetrated with things that shoot, called guns. And so I fully understand somebody saying, well, the way to stop them is we've obviously got to get rid of all the guns. The government has to get rid of all the guns in the country. Now, I'm, I'm just a little bit of a skeptic about government efficiency on any, any level at all. <laughs> um, and I'm not old enough to remember, neither is anyone here, to remember something called prohibition. 1920 to 1933, the government banned alcohol, like they would ban guns, Say, shall we say. And it's very intuitive, to it's very illustrative to see what happened to alcohol consumption in the uh, years 1920 20, 29. Well, if the government said don't drink alcohol, obviously nobody drank alcohol, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so it dropped uh, in the first 18 months because it took the market a little time to organize <laughs> the black market, as it were. Um, and so by, uh, by about 1922, alcohol consumption was back. And everybody, like anybody who liked to have a you know, drink or two during the week or after dinner, everybody had their own black market uh, alcohol supplier. They used to call him a bootlegger. And you had your, you know, in your, your Rolodex. Anyone remember a thing called a Rolodex, <laughs> right? That, that labels you as, uh, as primitive and old-fashioned, right? Rolodex, what's that? <laughs> but uh, everyone in their Rolodex, you know, had their dentist and their car mechanic and their doctor and their bootlegger.
0: <laughs>
1: it, it, didn't, it didn't stop, <laughs> it didn't stop the consumption of alcohol at all, right, like, yeah. The government just decrees, no, mo- and that stops it. The government will just decree, no, mo- and that'll stop it. So I'm I'm skeptical about those things, but I, I recognise the the logic of saying we should look and see what what is common to these uh, killings. And it's true that the ones that are shootings are they do share uh, the the tool, namely a gun, but turns out there are a whole lot of knifings in America going on and the government's figures for mass killings are four and above says who? Maybe three is is also a mass killing May alright two, two is just you know a discounted price for numbers but uh, <laughs> but three four, who says? But if you actually look from 3 uh, murders upwards there is many that are c- perpetrated with knives as with guns but that doesn't fit a political narrative that is part of the cultural clash in America today again I, uh, i'm only t- i'm only telling you this because i i want to Get you accustomed to this, to an analytical way of thinking and seeing where it is that thinking like that leads us. And so let's look and see maybe there are some other things that connect all mass killings, not just shootings, but maybe there's something that ties them all together. And Guess what? There is. There is something that is a more common factor for all the killings than guns are. Killings fall into two categories. Muslims, that's one group, and we'll leave that aside. And then I'll also leave aside sides and uh, felony-related killings. Where sometimes because of family relationships things go wrong, uh, jealousies. uh, All right, leaving that, we're talking about killings where somebody doesn't know the victim. Uh, Drug deals gone bad. That's kind of logic. I I get that. Um, Issues of you know disrespect, turf wars. I can understand all that. But what about the guy who walks into a Walmart and kills people he's never he's got no business with? That's the category we're now talking about. All the others are understandable. Not gonna say they make sense, that's giving them too much credit. But they're understandable. But how about the guys, you know, who walk into a nightclub or walk into one? What about them? What do they all share? Not the weapon, because some use knives, some use guns, some use bombs. What do they all share? They are all lonely, isolated males. They're all lonely and isolated males. That's it. Loneliness and isolation make you lose your mind. Have you ever heard the term solitary confinement? Now, you're all busy people. You're you're busy sales professionals. If you also have family lives, and on top of that you've got friends and you've got a social life, you are very busy people, and you probably would kind of like a few days in solitary confinement. (laughs) (laughs) But I have to tell you... It is not a reward for busy people. It is actually a torture. People do lose their minds in solitary. They do. I'm not going to talk about the uh, the prison system, the American prison system, which I believe is one of the most evil blots on the face of American society. Um, it's like being exiled to another country where there's no hope and no rescue and no nothing. It's an absolute calamity and there are a lot of Americans in solitary confinement and they don't do well it's a a very very awful thing and so um, in my worldview, the good Lord says look one way or another I want to get you people to connect and so I, I have two really nice incentives for you one is you can keep your mind without which life tends to go downhill. And number two, you'll get money. That ought to be enough to get you to do this. <laughs> yeah. That's what connection does. Nobody ever went mad from having too many people in their lives. You, s- you feel like it sometimes, oh, you're driving me crazy. But it's, it's just a figure of speech. Nobody ever went mad from too many people in their lives. People go mad from no contact in their lives. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the homeless problem in America, which obviously is a problem. And but the idea that, um, that all of a sudden, one day in America, a person with a family and, and lots of connections and all of a sudden finds himself on the street and homeless. It doesn't work like that. What unifies the overwhelming majority of homeless people is disconnection, enormous disconnection. Not even enough connection to be able to go and pick up a welfare check. That's how disconnected they are. Course the, of course mental illness is prevalent among the homeless population, obviously, because when you are disconnected, it's really bad for you. Conversely, when you are connected, it's wonderful. As a matter of fact, I think it's safe to say that nobody here is likely to pick up your hand to contradict me when I say that every single one of the best moments of your life, Every single time you you were really happy and every single time you really had an achievement and every single time you felt successful, it always involved at least one other human being. I don't think there's anybody here who could, who could object to that. Connection is the key. One of the great things about being a sales professional is that we learn to connect that's what we do and we shouldn't be surprised that that ability to connect produces rewards in the form of revenue because money is a good thing it's not a bad thing it's something that a wise parent to both incentivize their child and to accustom their child to the idea of consequences. I once had a a parent um, uh, consult with me. Uh, They'd they'd worked so hard on raising their children. Their oldest child had just gone off to college, and they were really upset. They're saying (coughs) this child had abandoned all the values that they had taught. And this child was doing things at college that violated everything that the family believed in, and they just you know because the child is 18 years old now they got no legal they they just don't know what to do. So what did I say? I think I said probably what each and every one of you would say is, let me just understand um, who is paying the, the tuition at that college every semester, uh, and the right? And the parent says uh, s- the parent says to me. Uh, he never got a scholarship we you know we passed uh, okay and where does the child live well um, they uh, they are living in off-campus housing sharing an apartment with four other students um, does that is it a rent- free apartment or does it have <laughs> no it has re- who who pays your I'm mystified who pays your child's portion, oh yeah no no we do of course Oh, of course, really, and um, <laughs> and uh, it d- it gets worse, by the way. Um, how does your child get around? Um, oh, well, he has he has a car. He's independent. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> Who bought the car now? Well, well, we did. And how about gas? Oh, gas. Well, he uses our family gas credit card. And you do not know how to control your child. <laughs> <laughs> And what does the person answer me? Who knows? He said, but isn't it wrong to try and control people with money? No, it's wrong to control people with
0: guns. (laughs)
1: It's not wrong to control people with money. Because when you control people with money, it's always with compliance, not coercion. With guns, it's coercion. But with money, it's compliance. You always have the choice of saying to me, I don't want your money. <laughs> but if you do want it, here are the conditions it comes with. What's hard to understand about that? But a lot of people believe that it's somehow immoral to use money in that in that particular way. One of the best things about having money is the control it gives you. <laughs> Seriously. It it gives you the control to convert problems into expenses. That's wonderful. It's so great to have a problem that would really be a problem for many, many people and for you. All it needs is to write a check and the problem goes away. (laughs) And it's easy, right? Can you think of 20 problems that can be solved with a check? (laughs) How nice it is to be able to live like that. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. And so that's why God says, I'm going to give you a huge blessing of financial abundance. All you have to do is love connecting with all my other children. And I'll tell you what, the more of them you connect with, the more I'll incentivize you. Now, how do we how do, we do all of that? Well, the first thing is that um, you can never – change anything that you cannot number. It's one of the the wonderful things about numbers. I I always like pointing out to folks that if you ever are trying to decide whether to invest in a certain business, don't listen to the story. Look at the number. Look at all the numbers. Because stories are easy to tell. And you know what? Stories always sound good, because when stories are told by expert storytellers, they get to your emotions, they resonate, and so you end up liking the story, and every single bad investment that anybody has ever made has been because of an emotional connection with a story, but if you, the great thing about numbers is they are without emotion, right? The number 57 means 57 whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood, whether you're happy, whether you're miserable. 57 means 57, but stories are a lot less reliable. And so we like being able to use numbers effectively. But for emotional connection, obviously stories are very important. And so, one of the things that, uh, that, that we, we, we are able to take away from all of this is to understand that when we measure something with numbers, there are no emotions. Right. We have hardcore things. If you, if you want to lose weight, mm-hmm. right, and, and who doesn't these days? It's, it's kind of interesting. I, I went back to look at a book um, called The Population Bomb by a man called Paul Ehrlich, who wrote the book in the late 60s. And he, he said that by the turn of the century, by the year 2000, millions of Americans would be dying of starvation every year. Well, 2000 has come and gone. And millions of millions are not dying of starvation. Our main problem is eating too much, not too little.
0: <laughs>
1: um, and so I thought, Paul Ehrlich, really, it's got to be the dumbest guy in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, to uh, you know, maybe there was a reason for saying it then, although I don't think there was. His basis for saying it was that uh, people are reproducing too rapidly, and business and farming will never be able to keep up with the need for food. Me, myself, back at that same period of time, I was a kid, but but I already then knew that human creativity knows no limits. And that if there is a need for more food, just as there was a need for alcohol in 1920 to 1933, no matter how hard and and even dangerous it was, there were people willing to supply that need. And so I, I never worried about it. And I thought to myself, you know, it'd be really interesting to find out uh, what happened to Paul Ehrlich. Like, he's probably a homeless guy now, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because how can you live with having been so wrong? And how can, you know, and and who would ever give you a job after you are famous? And this book was, was, I mean, very famous. So, guess where he is today? He's a tenured professor on the faculty of Stanford University. (laughs) (laughs) And there are people, I can't believe this, but there are actually people spending 60 grand a year so that their kids can be educated by that moron. (laughs) This is a weird world we live in.
0: Uh
1: I'd rather have a sales professional than a professor any day of the week. Not even a question mark. And so you want to lose weight, you've got to have numbers. If you don't have a scale and a notebook, or you don't have a smartwatch and a phone that does this all automatically, if you have no way of weighing and recording your weight every day, you'll never lose weight, (laughs) because you just don't know where you are. It's like, how how on earth are you ever going to become... more affluent? How are you ever going to have more money if you are not keeping a daily, weekly, monthly, annual record of money that comes in, where it comes from, where it goes out? A financial statements like this is, this is the lifeblood. You've got to know what's going on if you, if you want to change anything. And so, so it is also with connectivity. And, uh, and this is one of the, the reasons this, again, this Facebook guy was brilliant. Um, being able to count the number of friends you have sounds wonderful because we all know deep down having a lot of friends is a good thing and so he had a system there for counting the number of friends and he managed to fool a billion people that that actually means something I would switch 500 Facebook friends for a customer any day of the week.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I, I wouldn't think twice, in a heartbeat, done. You want 500 of my friends on Facebook, you've got em. just give me a customer. I want somebody who buys my service or my products. That counts. Friend on Facebook? Come on, who are you kidding? Okay fine, but so what is a friend? If now I know it's not a friend on Facebook, what is a friend? And there are many, many of us who have deep and wonderful friendships, and you say, well, look, it's hard to define, but I just I know who my friends are, and we kind of intuitively do. But if you actually do want to number it in an objective way, I have two suggestions. These are not exhaustive. There may be others, But um, but just because I'm so emphatic about the need for being able to actually know how many human beings you are connecting with and to know that this month... I'm connecting with more human beings than I did last month. Uh, This can only be done if you number it in some way, and it sort of seems almost Facebook-like to keep a list of all my friends, but you kind of got to do it. But what constitutes a friend? Well, two suggestions. One is anybody who would return your phone call. And you'll discover it's a lot fewer than you thought. that's one way of doing it. The other way is a little morbid but, uh, and it's a little, a little harder sort of test of course in any practical way, but the number of people who would mourn your going home to the Lord. Probably not as many as we'd like to think, <laughs> but those are two ways to measure your friends. And using that basis it's not the worst idea in the whole world to actually spend a little while compiling a list and see how many that is. Now, here's why it's, uh, it's so important. In the same way that it makes perfect sense from a sociological point of view to try and see what unifies mass killings as they try and analyze what can we do about the scourge in America and so on. And it makes it, you say, well, they all are lonely men. By the way, that also I don't want to get controversial any more than I absolutely have to, but I'm 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 struck by something. I'm going to say this. I'm going to say this because there's a lot of different people in the audience, and I would, ap- if anybody afterwards feels like telling me I'm right or I'm wrong, I'd appreciate that because if I'm wrong, I won't say it anymore. Um, I can't help noticing that the overwhelming majority of mass shooters are white. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting. So how would this fit? It doesn't fit the gun explanation, because everybody can get guns. There's no white or black issue on that. But here's a theory, just a theory. If you think I'm wrong, tell me afterwards. If I'm right, tell me. My theory is that black culture in America is more connected than white culture. when you see two strangers saying hi on the street, they're black people. Now I I don't know why, I don't have any explanations, but just my own observation, this is, I haven't studied 330 million Americans. (laughs) I don't know, but I'm just saying that if mass killers are all lonely isolated people, I think that there's a smaller percentage of lonely, isolated black people than white people. I just think that. And if there is any truth to that, that would further explain that the the image of a white male with no friends, no family to mention, Not a whole lot of people who would mourn his passing, playing video games by himself. Sorry, call me what you like, I see white, not black there, I just do. And if I'm right, well then that fits in to what the dominant common factor is in these horrible events namely loneliness and isolation. Now, it's interesting that um, one of the ways we acculturate little children to normal, healthy behavior is with our faces, meaning that when the little kid, I don't know, at a very young age, the little kid falls and starts crying, mom's face crumples up. Well, children see that, and they they are quick and able to interpret that. Oh, I'm hurting, and Mommy's sad. She's somebody important to me. That that's significant. A little bit older, um, he pushes his baby brother over. His baby brother's just learned to toddle. Gives him a good old shove, sends him into the coffee table. <laughs> um, little baby brother's face crumples up, and the tears start to flow. A normal human being sees that and says, oh, I've done something hurtful, I've caused pain, okay, I get it. Now I may still do it a few more times, because at five <laughs> years old it's kind of fun, but um, <laughs> but I, I'm on my way to a healthy adulthood because of a thing called a face. That face shows me, and by the way, to this day we still have it, right? When I I say something inappropriate at a gathering, people's faces are are my first signal that this was not a good thing to say. (laughs) Faces. So obviously, if you are disconnected from people's faces, how can you grow healthily? Where is your human empathy? And that's why we speak about face-to-face meetings. I won't go into the the biblical references again and again, face to face. uh, His face, he showed him his face, he hid his face from him. All of that makes sense when you understand the significance of a face. I don't know the exact number because I've tried to research this for years, and again there may be people here who, who actually do know, and if you do, I wish you'd tell me, but the face has a disproportionate number of muscles, did you know that? Now, some muscles are to move the eyes, and some muscles are to move the mouth, and some muscles let you wiggle your nose and your ears if you're particularly talented. <laughs> but, but leaving aside all of those sort of practical utilitarian muscles, um, there's at least, I'm, I'm told, uh, seems to be the case, at least, some numbers are higher, at least 45 other muscles on the face which have nothing to do with breathing and nothing to do with eating and nothing to do with seeing. So what are they there for? Only one thing, and that is expression. Expression. Isn't that weird? Again, I, I'm not saying you cannot come up with an evolutionary explanation for that. Maybe you can. I, have no, I don't know and I don't care. My worldview is that we were created with faces for expression because that is how you build a bond. Faces mean something. Now, I was, and I probably still am, I'm just just in terms of a sort of personal <laughs> disclosure here, um, I am very handicapped in that area. Now, it may not look quite as bad as it really is because I'm doing my best to have an expression on my face, but um, I grew up, um, first of all, in an English, a British sort of background. And if you ever heard the British expression, you have to have a stiff upper lip. Mm -hmm. That's how I was brought up. Um, You cried when you were a a, a little boy of my uh, circle, and you were a big baby. And I I mean, yeah, there it is. Uh, To show your feelings on your face, what are you? A girl? (laughs) Because even then, little boys we understood girls connected better than boys how many mass shootings have been conducted by women (laughs) see I think it's the same principle I think when you are connected with other people you don't go crazy I mean do I need to do I need to persuade anybody here that mass shootings are the work of madmen a familiar side isn't necessarily the work of a madman, right? He slept with my wife, I have to shoot him. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> I don't necessarily endorse it, but I get it. <laughs> right? Nobody's gonna say I'm a madman. It's understandable. In fact, some co- some legal systems in some countries sort of had a, a slightly more lenient approach for that, kind, of, because it's understandable. He's not mad, he's very sane, <laughs> right? And the same thing, you know, I, look, it's horrible stuff, but okay, he, he reneged on a, on a drug deal. If I don't shoot him, then everyone else is gonna do that to me. I get that, <laughs> I think it's tragic,
0: <laughs>
1: but I don't say, hey, what a madman. No, he's very sane, he's a sane businessman operating in another world that's all
0: <laughs>
1: yeah right but mass shootings insanity That's insanity probably brought on by a culture that has produced too many lonely men I'm not a sociologist I'm not going I don't know why what or how but I'm just an observant I'm, I'm an observant person I, I see what's going on and I'm non-political I I care for the truth regardless of of who it offends. And for me the truth is very easy to see here, it's it's not a hard thing. And so connection, uh, connection is everything. And if I'm spending all my time in my formative years playing video games, then I never ever learn to connect facially. And now with me growing up, it wasn't video games or anything, but... um, an English gentleman does not show his feelings on his face. (laughs) So I didn't, ever, regardless of whether I was... I mean, this is me delirious with joy. (laughs) (laughs) You do see that if you were taking notes just then, you'd have missed it, right? (laughs) And this is me in the depths of dismay and distress. <laughs> <laughs> as you can imagine, as I grew up and began to think about joining the world of reality, um, I realized eventually what a, what a tremendous handicap this was. Um, nobody ever, even people I thought of as friends, didn't believe I really cared about anything obviously and the great thing about women is that they don't conceal their faces are connected directly to their emotions with guys there's a sort of filtering system first (laughs) and so I you know you'll meet Susan over there um, she's got the. the the bulk of the solid material you need uh, to have as part of your professional library um, and the training programs you need to subject yourself to on on a fairly regular basis. But when you meet Susan, um, if you – I strongly recommend you don't do this, but if you used bad language. I mean, her face would show it <laughs> right away. <laughs> she would not be blasé about this, you know. Uh, her face shows exactly what she's thinking all the time. Uh, with me, I had to – eventually it was a teacher when I was uh, in high school. A teacher said, I, you know, once to talk to me, took me aside and sort of introduced me to this concept which I knew nothing about. That God gave us a face with the ability to show expression, because that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and so, I mean, my natural—it's still not—it's still not—it's not particularly good. I mean, I try and work on it, but for me, this is still a bit of a, a struggle. I actually years ago, I actually spent a lot of time in front of a mirror, trying out different looks. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like I was like an, a kid without a look. You know, I didn't. My my <laughs> face was just complete. <laughs> it was terrible. Um, what also happens, you know, as time goes by, you get a little bit older. Your facial expressions uh, begin to become more reflective of who you are. So your spiritual identity, I think of it as your soul, actually finds expression in both your face and your creativity, namely your fingertips. And to me. That is why the good Lord made each of our fingertips different and each of our faces different. So much so that um, I'll ask you a question. If you have a set of identical twins in the womb, they're identical, so it's either two boys or two girls. Each one has the identical DNA, right? right? It's the split of a fertilized egg. So there is no way that one of them has any genetic information that the other doesn't have. Would you agree with that? Right. Everybody knows that. Therefore, do they come out into the world with the same set of fingerprints or different sets of fingerprints? And you all say different. And if any of you could explain it, you'd probably become a world-famous biologist at that moment because nobody can explain it. They come up with various explanations. One of them, they say, the fingers rub on the uterine lining. Well, in that case, it should just be a smeary blob and a smudge. (laughs) It shouldn't be a perfectly coherent, perfect set of fingerprints that is different from every other human fingerprint on the planet. Where does that come from? It's a big mystery. Nobody actually knows. Uh, There's a a word they invented to explain it. But um, uh, the word is epigenetics. Okay, it doesn't actually. I mean, means that certain keys that tu- you can't get away from the basic problem, which is there is only one set of genetic information. Why? So what's going on here? I don't think of it as a fingerprint. I think of it as a soul print, mm-hmm. because one of the things that distinguishes us from animals is our ability to create. We can create things that animals cannot create. Right. And so that creativity is because we are built in the image of the great creator himself. So in the same way that he's unique, each of us has to be unique, and sure enough, we are. And where else are we unique? On our faces. So when we communicate with one another, you're never, ever going to say, oh, you know, I thought you were Joe from uh, Singapore. I mean, you know, if if you don't look too carefully, I guess, but basically everybody has their own face. And expressions are really important. So all I'm saying is that uh, in your day-to-day work, if any of you um, feel maybe somebody near and dear to you might share the information that you don't reveal enough with your face, (coughs) then you too might benefit from a little bit of time spent in front of the mirror. And. or have a friend video you when you're not um, necessarily aware, or if you role-play a business interaction so that somebody can video you while you're doing it and you see yourself, you might see that you are deficient in the expression department. You're wasting most of those 45 expression muscles. Uh, That's something worth looking into and fixing up a little bit because the empathy between people comes about through face to face, and it becomes uh, really helpful and, uh, and, uh, and really valuable to do that. The, um, the connections not only produce sanity, as I said, but connections also produce wealth. And um, Malcolm Gladwell was, um, was the first person who alerted me to this. It wasn't his research, but he pointed me to where it was. And that is, in the same way we might want to look and see what are the common factors that mass killers have, and there's useful results that can come out of that, we might also (coughs) want to see what are the common factors that financially successful people who create a lot of financial revenue, people who produce financial, what are their common (coughs) factors? And it's very hard, you know, it's men and women, it's uh, every different kind of person, uh, an example of every kind of person has succeeded. but what is the one thing they all seem to have? Turns out there's really only one thing, and that is they all have a, an unusually high number of friends, real friends, people who will answer their phone calls. Well, that makes sense when you think about it, right? Because however you earn your living, you need to have people out there who know you like you and trust you right I don't care I mean if if I'm buying a car the dealership I end up with will be the dealership where I find I have an emotional connection with the uh with the 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 person on the floor the sales professional I deal with that's and I'm not I'm not unique in this you know in in I mean you know, if I'm spending $30,000 on a car, am I really willing to go across town to a place where I can get a $120 discount on the price? I, don't I really don't care. It's just not significant enough. I'd much rather go for a pleasant experience, right. convenience, if the service to bar. Those are the things I'm that are going to make a difference to me. So the purchase experience, I don't want to walk away with a bad taste in my mouth. Every time I bring it in for service, I don't want to have to deal with unpleasantness there. We all, no matter what you're selling, services, goods, yourself, whatever it is, people like dealing with likable people. And so being a cheerful person and being an optimistic person is really important. Now, my at rest face says, Go away, I hate you.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: maybe a little less now because I really do love people but again when I was, uh, when I was in my teens and, and very early twenties, you looked at my face when I wasn't thinking about when I, my resting, a normal natural expression, go away, I hate you that's what it said, and to, to varying degrees, uh, we all are in a range, some of us have very welcoming and open faces; others less so, but it's something worthwhile looking. It actually makes a difference in dollar terms. Our ability to connect with people really is impacted by what we do with our faces. So it's worthwhile it's worthwhile being aware of that and being aware that um, and and we're going to bring us in for a landing now but uh, being aware that um, uh, wealth is created by connections on its most basic level. A life is too short to have interactions with people who drain your energy through their pessimism and who who look like they're going to bite your head off if you say the wrong thing. Who, Who needs that? And so we all go out of our way to interact with nice people. Similarly, whatever business we're in, if we are that nice person, it's not a surprise that people go out of their way to deal with us. We get word of mouth recommendations. Word of mouth recommendations very seldom has anything to do with the difference of the product you're selling, and it very seldom has anything to do with your competence. Everybody needs a basic level of competence. You've got to know and believe in what you're selling. But very few people are going to say, "You know what? You really got to go talk to Joe about your needs or whatever your needs are. He's terrific." Is that because I, I put it another way? I sometimes ask the question: Most people really like their doctor or one of their doctors, uh. right? And in fact, the first thing when people move to a new location, they have to find a doctor. How do they do it? Personal recommendation. Mm-hmm. And I've I've done this experiment. I've asked people. So um, how did you? Ha- well, somebody recommended. Was it a good? Re- oh yeah, I've been with the doctor for five years. Been wonderful. Have you recommended this doctor to anyone? Oh yeah, 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 I have. Let me – do you really feel that was a responsible thing to do?" And they say, well, yeah, why not? I say, well, do you know how high in his medical school class he graduated? (laughs) (laughs) And they look at me shocked and they say, no. Do you know which medical school he went to? No. And here's the best question of all. Do you actually know that he went to medical school?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and you know what the answer is? No. 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 And then they say, well, there's a diploma on the wall. You know, put me in front of a computer and a print, I'll give you a diploma for anything. <laughs> this, is, this is not a problem. So why are people recommending doctors? Because they're nice people. They like them. Doctors get recommended for what they call bedside manner, not for technical competence. You don't need more proof than that. And you know we're we're all we're all busy professionals, and there's constant education needed on our products, and there's constant education needed on uh, technology and all kinds of things. So sometimes we lose sight of these human features which are things that really drive a transaction when you get right down to it. They make it possible. And all of a sudden, prospecting turns into fun because it's a genuine human interaction. Now it's, it's you know, not every time, I've also, I've been hung up, I've been hung up on the phone plenty of times, I get that. Um, but uh, there it is, I, 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 I understand it, fine, okay, it's person whatever whatever their problem is, move right on, keep going. But the, um, the ability to connect is literally what produces wealth, whether it is um, the fact that cities are much better places to make money than remote areas. But if you If you want to open up a store, don't open it up in Somalia. <laughs> And you'll say, well, there's no competition. I'll be the only furniture store in Somalia. Okay, I've got a better idea. Open it up on um, Alpha Road. (laughs) Much better idea. But there are a lot of furniture stores there. Yeah, exactly. Proximity and connection produce wealth. It's a good thing. And that's why Silicon Valley exists and that's why Route 128 in Boston exists. There's always clustering because connection produces wealth. That's absolutely what works. And so being able to measure that connection and being able to therefore measuring it, you're able to increase it. You're able to actually measure the things that work. And and this is one of the reasons that in, in a good business, my customers and my clients become my friends because there was a genuine interaction there. And I served a need. I improved their lives. And obviously they valued that more than the money they paid me, otherwise they wouldn't have done it because I wasn't pointing a gun at them. Connection. I call it the four C's. Connect, communicate, collaborate, and create. You first got to make that basic connection. And then you've got to be able to communicate. Well, in some of the material there, uh, there is very specific guidance on increasing your effective communication. For many people, we prefer emails because it doesn't involve the fear factor of a face-to-face communication. It's very rare that a transaction is closed by email. It's uh, two people over a table sitting and talking, face to face, but part of it is fear. On an email, nobody's looking at me, nobody's seeing my face. I can take my time thinking about the right words to use, and then I can hit send, but in a conversation, I have to respond. The person said something, I have to respond right away, if that is a factor for you then you absolutely owe it to yourself to improve your fluency and your ability to articulate. We're out of time but I have taught that on, on uh, in previous meetings we focused on that. It's all there where Susan is. Don't use bad words with her. <laughs> <laughs> Her face will show whether she likes how you talk or not, I promise you. Um, so uh, that is, um, is, is why I recommend that you uh, hurry along there, get your tools and your equipment. Um, a lot of that is essentially um, taking me with you into your home or into your office or wherever it is you do your self-development. And it it makes it easier for a whole lot of us to work together. But what I I hope we've done very much at least during our time together, first of all, it's great to see some of you back here again. I I recognize some of your (laughs) faces. And and what I hope I've I've done is at least um, showed you that there are areas to expand your effectiveness in business enormously uh, that are perhaps – not ones you might have intuitively thought of, but they are basic and fundamental to ancient Jewish wisdom. These are some of the things that have been responsible for the people of my religion's disproportionate financial success over the years. Not things you read about in business magazines, not things you'll get at business school, but these are really the things that make the world work. So lots and lots of success. I wish you all tons of success as you implement the principles. uh, And and there's a lot of work to be done there. This is not an easy afternoon read. Uh, There's a fair amount of work to get through. Um, There is also for people who like getting the information rather through video, where you actually will see my face teaching the material. Uh, There are many people who prefer learning that way. That's available also. Uh, But whatever it is, we want you all to succeed beyond your wildest dreams. Why? Well, first of all, uh, from a purely selfish point of view, I make more money if you succeed. (laughs) And I like making money. And so when you tell other people, oh, I I was really helped by this material, uh, that is good for me. But on a deeper level, I live in a society. I live in a place, and if you ask me my choice, I don't care what I do for a living, plumber, Shoe, shoe shine. <coughs> I get a good shoe shine at the uh, at DFW the other day. Um, did I? Whatever I do, would I rather live among poor people or rich people? Of course, right. Poor people don't hire m- my, me as a plumber. They fix their own pipes or just live with them as they are, right? Poor people don't pay me to shine their shoes for them. Poor people don't need my services. No. Uh, the society in which I live and the society in which my family is growing up is a society that is improved the more people who are independent of government, independent of anybody else, who can walk tall and look the world in the eye because they got money coming in every day, even when they sleep. There's value in that. Thanks for being with me. I love being with you guys and see you soon again.
0: You, Thank you. Thank
1: you. Well, I do hope that you enjoyed that, uh, and uh, also that you have a chance to go onto the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and read up a little bit more about the audio program Madam, I'm Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. Um it's also, it's also available on Amazon, I believe, uh, pretty sure it is for those of you who prefer um, <laughs> acquiring all your purchases from that emporium. So uh, madam, I'm Adam decoding marriage secrets from Eden. And if you don't remember rabbi Daniel Lappin.com, then you'll remember you need a rabbi.com. Uh, That also works, and uh, both ways you're able to get to my website. You're also able to let me know whether you enjoyed this show and found it to be useful to you, uh, because I assure you the very last thing I want to do is run even the slightest risk of wasting your time. That is our most valuable and precious commodity, and the only one we cannot buy or acquire or replace That is the commodity that must always be expended to good effect. And if you are investing your time listening to my show, then I've got to make absolutely certain that it does not waste your time but provides you with real value in return for the time you invest. So that brings us to the end of this show. Thank you very much for being part of it. And again, as always, I deeply appreciate those of you who help promote the show by encouraging other people to listen to it, by sending out a link or by telling somebody about it or incorporating it on your blog or whatever else are some of the very creative ways that some of you have been ending the word about the rabbi daniel lapin show at any rate the results show your effectiveness and i deeply appreciate it so until next week i your rabbi me rabbi daniel lapin i want to wish you a week of good times as you build and develop your relationships with your faith with your family with your finances and with your friendships i'm rabbi daniel lapin till next time god bless Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.